0: You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality yeah, yeah. Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and I'm joined, as always, by Marty Gibson. Good morning, Marty. Morning, Marie. How are you doing? I'm good. Interesting theme this week in the paper, largely due to the fact that there was very, very little in the paper. I think, yeah. I think the sheep are actually running out of things to, to say and do.
1: It's nothing you didn't know, is it, when you when you read these things? I read Claire Tr- Trevitt's whole thing, and I couldn't underline anything because it's just like, well, yeah, I know that. I know that sound with Mike Hoskins sort of having a crack at it. I mean, Claire Trevitt said, for National, the most concerning area will be around its tax cuts promise, something both ACT and New Zealand First have reservations about. It has already been a sticking point in the talks and is problematic for National because it's a bottom-line promise. The Issues are not so much around the tax cuts as the timing scale and the way national intends to pay for them. And as I've said before, I think there's no, I don't think they can compromise on the foreign buyers tax or the tax cuts. As I said, I think the foreign ban on foreign buyers lifting that is basically a way to allow toilet paper, American Federal Reserve money to inflate New Zealand's economy. And I, and I do question the appetite for tax cuts of that sort, you know. I mean. As We've said before, you know, it's saying best case scenario, people are going to get what 200 bucks a fortnight. The average mortgage in New Zealand, let's remember, has gone up by a thousand dollars a month. So, I mean, it, it might help, but I think uh, eventually we've got to talk about the elephant in the room, which are the bankers.
0: Mm. And they've been uh, releasing record profits.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you think the profits are record now, you, you wait till they, uh, Start turning their fake money into real real estate and jacking up the uh, the price uh, on borrowing money that's worth less.
0: <laughs> Here's the interesting thing: I did hear a stat yesterday, and. It was around, I think there was um, one of the surveys had just been released. Anyway, the out of the, a million mortgage holders, I think, in New Zealand, it was something along the lines that only 2,000 were at that point where they are at extreme hardship in meeting their mortgage, which is a much, much smaller number than they were yeah. expecting. And my thought on that was, was, oh, okay, that's actually quite interesting. So what does that actually mean? Does that mean that Kiwis are actually able to rein in discretionary spending to a point to actually find that money for their mortgage, which then means if they were able to do that, why weren't they actually doing that to begin with in order to reduce their mortgage pressure? Well, to because
1: the, the, there was a, an abundant money supply and people with one house, I guess, tended to buy two houses that then get rented out so people are really struggling to pay the rent. If we look at what's happening in America, you know, you've know, got, again, the Reserve Bank, uh, the Fed, Chairwoman Janet Yellen saying, "Don't worry about the deficit; we can handle it." You know, and uh, U.S. debt, uh, government debt's around thirty-three trillion. Now, I oh, know it's just um, insane, it, it, and and they're paying uh, interest on that's one trillion per annum debt. When Trump got in, was nineteen trillion, and he jacked it up to twenty-six point nine trillion. So it's it's not like again, it's 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 not like it's a red or blue is any better. Um, Moody's has just downgraded the U.S. credit rating from stable to negative and they've low- lowered the median ratings of U.S. banks. So, you know, it's, they're just bl- blowing this up and eventually they will get the right reset. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that, that's the idea. You know, looking at the U.S. still, the, their credit card debt was up in a quarter by 4.6% and that's cracked over $1 trillion for the first time. They're just the, the figures are just eye-watering.
0: Mm. Oh, um, I just.
1: And, um, you know, that's the you will own nothing and be happy. Well, you know, it's the banks basically saying, well, you owe us more than your assets are worth. So give us our pound of flesh. Mm. That's what it's that, That's always at the top of the pyramid. You have to kind of keep in mind that. And those banks own the media. Those banks can, if a politician starts getting too big for their boots, they say, hey, look, we might just get our friends over at Moody's who are saying everything was all cool uh, with our weird financial weapons of mass destruction. We might just get them to downgrade your rating so your interest rates go up and then your people won't like that and you'll be turfed out. So the, the amount of control they've got on what's happening is incredible. And there was another article in the Weekend Herald about, did you read the one about the uh, all the debt that's owed by beneficiaries?
0: Yes, I did.
1: It wasn't the Weekend Herald, actually. Sorry, it was the Sunday Star Times. $3.5 billion, 500,000 Kiwis owe $3.5 billion to the government because they're living on the edge and then their car breaks down and they go to work at income. They say, well, you can have a loan.
0: It's a money-go-round, they called it. So you've you've got them living on the edge with all these loans that they have to pay back back to the government whilst they're going to the government with their hand out to pay for the emergency.
1: Yeah, well, the loans are getting paid off by money they're getting off the government.
0: Yeah, it is just, I mean, insanity.
1: It's that uh, inflationary printing money and kicking the can down the road, isn't
0: it? Indeed.
1: You can understand the sense of hopelessness you'd get if you're struggling to feed your kids and you owe the government a hundred thousand dollars, you know why would you think? Okay, right, I'm going to get a job. It's really embedding welfareism, and isn't it just that sense of hopelessness and that you just can't get ahead?
0: Yeah, and because you know, and there oh, there is just there are so many dynamics at play here. And yeah, and all you're doing is creating a debt spiral and a debt trap. So, so if they are wanting to try and move themselves out of that, whether it be with work, because that's the other side of it. If you're drawing a benefit, they punish you for, for working. You know, like you can only work a certain level before your benefit is impinged. And a lot of the work that they can potentially get is either at the lower end of the income scale or it is uh, not necessarily on permanent contract and it's more casual. So then... And the hassle that you have to go through to sort of get the work, then you have to stop benefits and go through. And it's not easy. I, for the very first time, had to sort of enter into the system temporarily last year. To be fair, I know that they don't want it to be too easy. But when you make it difficult, not only to get into the system, but also difficult for people to transition themselves out of the system, so therefore they just... Decide to maintain themselves in the status quo. Well, how you go? How's that good for aspiration? How's that good for driving people out of poverty by wanting to inspire to do more? Because it's just easier to d- stay put.
1: I know I sent it to you. I know your husband listened to it. But that um, interview Cameron Slater did with John Banks was oh, was really powerful. I thought you know, and I, I didn't realize what a an awful. Childhood, awful childhood he had And you know There was that moment when he he said You know, I know what it's like to Get the shit beaten out of me Because I've pissed the bed Every morning You piss the bed if your adrenaline Is sky high Because you've been beaten I think that guy's a national treasure And, And you know, in a lot of his interviews He said how unappreciated he feels As an older white man
0: He said that with Leighton Um, Smith a month or so ago. Yeah,
1: his story is one of escaping that kind of grinding poverty. And while I was listening to that, it occurred to me, you know how there's there's a lot of talk about, oh, we should dock beneficiaries whose kids aren't going to school. Uh, The thought occurred to me, you know what we should do is pay them more if they do go to school. We should pay them more if they do stay out of trouble, if they've been in trouble. Right, so rather than punitive, it, it's rewarding. And, and again, it's, it's that, let's give you a bit of, bit, bit of carrot rather than stick. O- often all those people have known as a stick, and it's not an excuse. It's an explanation.
0: Well, yeah. I certainly would encourage people if you've not heard that interview on the crunch with Cam and John Banks, it is definitely a must listen. Even if it's just to the point that Cam's nickname was quite openly revealed by John Banks, and well, I, I, I,
1: I referred to him as Whale. Subsequently, said, "Oh no, it's Whale."
0: <laughs> he uh, did. I don't think John referred to Cam as Cam once. It was, yeah, Whale. Whale. whale.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. There's a lot of people like that. Have people who've got all sorts of preconceptions. But I had a, you know, I guess I had a bit of a preconception about John Banks in, in, in a sense, and a lot of people do about uh, Cameron Slater. It's always worth a listen. And as mm. I've said before, it's the best political journalism in New Zealand right now and it receives zero funding from the government. I I don't think that's a coincidence.
0: And I think one of the things for me with that interview too is Banks talked about aspiration. He talked about, you know, where he came from. He talked about um, the work he does now in terms of giving back to the community, the importance for him that faith played.
1: Well, you know, the the thing that he said that just, I, th- I think is the most incredible uh, thing. He said If you, when, when his charter school in Whangarei was operating before Chris Hipkins came in and shut it down on the first day they were in power, he said if you went into a secondary school in Whangarei and asked the principal how many of your Māori and Pacific Island children do you expect to pass school C this year, I'm sure it's called something else now, they'd say about 40%. And if you went if you went to my school and asked them, you know, what, what percentage do you, do you think will pass? The principal would say, well, 96%, and I hope to get it to 100% next year. Again, this really cuts to the heart of you. you've you got Māori leaders who are all ready to have protests five to ten times bigger than the Springbok tours If we start looking at the principles of the treaty, although they always conflate it and tell their um, low information followers that it's the treaty itself, which is terrible. And I noticed even one of the editorials did that as well, which I thought was was shameful.
0: It was disingenuous, yeah. Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah. But they won't do that for the terrible results that kids are getting in education that dooms them to a life of being low information and subject to the whims of leaders, Mm. like the people who don't care about it.
0: We talk often about the educational numbers and charter schools for me is, other than the fact that they wanted centralised control and you had a unionised workforce that didn't want to have those outside of that workforce. And teachers
1: unions who fund the Labour Party.
0: Yeah, so they destroy that. Those, the success of those charter schools for those minority groups was overwhelming absolutely overwhelming and a lot of them i know have had to bend over backwards and go through all of these hoops in order to get registration back into the system and they struggle now re- whether or not they're faith-based or within um you know specialist charters like maori and pacifica youth that you know they really do struggle to get what to achieve what they were achieving before and also and again education and prisons You know, I can't see why. And again, someone, if you know this differently and this is happening and I'm not aware of it, but I just look at where we're at with that, the the number of programs that have been slashed in six years in prison. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we're locking them up and they're not getting the support that they need. And I'd love to see lack of education often lands these people in prison. Well, then you've got a captive audience. Let's get them tooled up with the smarts that they need to hopefully turn a corner. And that's not even happening. And we've got the facilities to do it. Takura exists. The correspondence school is there. Um, yep. I just love to see that born. it doesn't. Uh, the, the will, the desire just doesn't seem to be. Governments
1: love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more government.
0: Mm, I know. And
1: so, you know, that, that doesn't satisfy either of those criteria, educating prisoners and getting them out of the system it doesn't satisfy either of those criteria, getting beneficiaries off benefits.
0: No, no, it doesn't. And this has been the thing, Like, both, the one observation that both you and I had with the papers, particularly on the weekend, is just the lack of real estate on anything reasonable mm. um, was quite dis- discerning. But there was some really good independent stuff. And one thing that you shared with me yesterday, which uh, I agreed with you fully, and it was actually in um, Itangata, yeah, and and this the segues into this, and it's called a Korera with David Seymour by Dale Husband, and it was interviewing David Seymour. You know, obviously through a Maori lens, it was excellent, and I'm really pleased that they published this because it showed another side of Seymour. But see, he brought up you know the elements of charter schools, and he brought up some really interesting points on the treaty.
1: Well, again, it's the first time that I've seen it represented that clearly. Yeah, you've still got. Those editorials, yeah, talking about well, he wants to have a referendum on the treaty, and it's it's like it's it's not a referendum on the treaty; it's on the principles of the treaty. Mm. And I think the uh, the the question was, how do you feel about people who say you want to rewrite the treaty and who are angry that you want to dismantle Maori initiatives, including Te Aka ora, to the point of questioning your Maori ness? says, is. Well, it's mainly disappointing because when people make those personal attacks and spread a misinformation about my position, they're really saying they don't want to have a rational debate about the future. You might ask yourself, if you don't want to have a rational debate about the future, why are you in politics? The whole point of politics is that it's a meeting to exchange ideas and find a way forward. But what you've got is a group of people who, in effect, say, no, I don't want to debate the merits of your idea. I just want to attack you personally. There's something else he said, he says, You're being criticised for suggesting now that we have a referendum on the Treaty of Waitangi. What's your response? Well, a lot of critics haven't taken the time to understand what we're proposing. The Treaty will never go away, and it will always say exactly what it says. What we're suggesting is simply that Parliament should define the principles of the Treaty. I think Parliament should define them, and I think that everybody should be involved in signing off what they mean. That would be a positive discussion for New Zealand to have. Why would anyone oppose that? It seems to me that there are some people who are afraid to see the treaty principles being open to some sunlight because they've largely been decided behind closed doors by the courts and the Waitangi Tribunal and the public service. We just think that if 5 million of us have to live here under a set of rules, then we should all get to ratify those rules. That's the debate he's looking for. Mm, It's not a debate about taking the treaty away. It's not about uh, giving the claims back or anything like that, it's about these principles of the treaty that Jeffrey Palmer put in as a patch on some legislation he was writing on state-owned assets or state services. He was asked by Richard Preble, what does that mean? He said, well, it's a great thing. It doesn't mean anything. It's just window dressing. It's meaningless. Mm. Mm. And yeah. the, the, a few activist judges gave it meaning. And so Willie Jackson was saying, oh, you know, I don't think we should you know, be, be going backwards on, on these uh these principles of the treaty that have been agreed on for decades, well, he means since the 80s.
0: Mm, Exactly. And the other quote, too, is, is I think New Zealand does have to have the debate because the way the treaty is currently interpreted is increasingly divisive. And I agree with Dame Anne Salmon, who's from our hometown, who says that the treaty would never have required the public sector to be split down the middle and co-governed by two races. That's a 1980s corporate interpretation of what the treaty meant, whereas I think it meant that each person would have the same rights and duties as a citizen. So it's taking it back to basic principles.
1: Yeah, there's a bit of that emerging. I mean, the other thing that was in the paper, widget which was nine questions with Mike King. And he very much had that same, I guess, is on the same page as us in terms of, man, you know, I'm sick of being divided so I can be ruled. I'm sick of being pitted against people who I share so much common interest with by people who share very little common interest with me or Maori. Or you know, everyday Maori who are struggling under the same interest rates being jacked up, inflation from wasteful government spending to these little in crowds. Mike King. One of the questions was, "What's one word to sum up your mood right now?" And he said, "Hopeful." I think there's always a chance for understanding and unity. It's my hope that New Zealanders can embrace diverse opinions, find common ground, and remember the power of true community. Kia ora to that, mm. Mike.
0: Absolutely. And it was funny, before we got started, we were talking about themes and I said to you that I really wanted to, I spoke at another Rotary meeting this week. I asked
1: you if you joined Rotary.
0: (laughs) You did, yeah. Somehow I don't think they'll accept my application if I were to it. After the incident at the weekend. It's so funny. I mean, I've spoken to two clubs in the last few months and the first one was so different two different groups. And one was, to be fair, the first group were a bit younger, closer to my age, whereas the second group was certainly much, much older. And it was really fascinating to see where just even the difference, probably an average age would have been about a decade, maybe 15 years, where you have a group of New Zealanders who are predominantly retired. They've got their lives exactly where they want them, where they they're they're happy they're comfortable they're you know living in those golden years and the last thing they want to do is be confronted by uh stark truths of what's going on and uh certainly it was it was something that i you know really did rattle me i had to i've had to sort of reflect on it for a couple of days but the positive thing around that is it It's about, and I did say to them, I said, we've got to take everything back to those basic principles. Whilst a lot of us wildly disagreed on things, and there was someone that very strongly disagreed on my point of view, let's look at those commonalities. Let's take those things back to what we all agree on, regardless of where we sit politically and ideologically. And I think that's what we're missing. That's what we're missing because that discourse is never allowed to occur. Yeah,
1: exactly. Oh, you didn't point your finger at them and uh, use no. my slur?
0: No, when I did I was not. was young,
1: we had better old people.
0: No, I didn't. And I tried, I worked very, very hard to try and stay quite measured because I didn't want to get angry or confrontational. Some had very good questions and probing and sort of there were gentle sort of pushbacks but discussion, which is brilliant. That's the entire point. The talk primarily was around why Reality Check Radio was created, and what I talk about in terms of culture and what is woke. And a number of them pushed back on my definition of woke, believing that they themselves were woke because, like one held held very strong Christian values. So therefore, because they have those values and then have a strong moral compass in terms of social issues and community, therefore that made them woke, which is actually just delightful in its naivete yeah but these are good people these are good people and i think they found it sort of quite confronting that when i say to them this was created because these discussions are not happening anywhere else and the and, and i know that they're not happening because of their belief and definition of what something is right down to somebody absolutely insisting that all of this woke behaviour and cancer culture certainly doesn't exist and it didn't come from the universities because that's where they preside and work and they have not experienced that themselves.
1: Well, Bill Burr was hilarious about that. Did you see his Saturday Night Live monologue where he said it was originally about black people and you know some of the injustices they'd suffered? At least it was for about five minutes before women slipped their Gucci booted foot over the fence and made it all about them.
0: That's why uh, my it's life's important so that
1: hard. oh my heated seat my SUV. Uh, no.
0: Yeah, it's um that was it was really really interesting. And so looking at the themes and just looking at some of the stuff that's in the paper, like you know, even the, the negotiations, the coalition negotiations. I mean, the media are literally milking mice on this and sort of like whining. There's almost this element of whining that, oh, it's taking so long, and Zero oh we Expecting
1: their food at a certain time. The the interesting thing that I've noticed more and more is the left will characterise the right or capitalism broadly by its worst characteristics and faults, whereas they see themselves in this pristine theoretical kind of light, absolutely devoid of gulags and mass starvation and uh, thought control and oppressive sameness.
0: One of the themes from the Chat in the QA that I had at the at the meeting the other night was fear of free speech and having these open discussions, like a, a, a genuine fear. It's a pity because I read this um the day after, and I so wish I'd read it before I'd gone to do it. Um and it's from Graham Adams. It was actually originally in the platform, credits to the platform, but I picked it up on Bassett Brash and Hyde, and it's called Wakey Wakey Mainstream Media. And it says, and it opens with last week Newsroom's political editor, Joe Moyer, seems surprised to discover that co-governance and its various policy manifestations aren't popular. On X, she wrote, exclusive poll. OK, Newsroom hasn't entered the poll race, but we have fascinating new data from Talbot Mills showing that people surveyed opposed Mighty wards, co-governance and Mighty Health Authority than actually supported them. For people like us who work in an independent media landscape, this is no shock whatsoever. But it strikes me that someone like Joe is going to be someone that would have been totally shocked by the election result. Because when you live in that media bubble, this is the echo chamber that you're now in. So it actually sort of goes on to talk about the result. Graham says here the most vital lesson for a journalist to take from the Talbot Mills data should be really that they have failed miserably despite all their efforts to convince many voters that co-governance is fair, equitable and democratic. Because let's face it, they've had plenty of opportunity to tell us that because the debate on this was not found anywhere else within the mainstream at all. And then he goes on to the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which is something that I talked about at the meeting. And I talked about the Public Interest Journalism Fund and how it worked, how it did come with strings attached. And that's even before you got to the full rack rate advertising revenue that was also passed out. So therefore, I said very, very quickly, through the auspices of an emergency, you created an environment with the media where they required an economic hardship at that time to take this money from the government and it's very, very quick that you do not want to bite the hand that feeds. I could see that that did not go down well with some people in the room. And you don't have to scratch below the surface in order to find this. This is not This is hiding in plain sight. And they covered this. Moire um, is not alone. Of course, among mainstream media journalists who happen to stumble across well-known truths belatedly or even accidentally, last month, Newstalk ZB's Mike Hoskins read out part of a column by political commentator Chris Trotter, the lovely Chris Trotter, and referred to the eligibility criteria governing access to the 55 million public interest journalism fund. The requirements to access the cash including presenting the treaty as a partnership some of Hosking's audience seemed shocked to discover that the PIJF cash had strings attached regarding the treaty one listener tweeted did I hear Hosking's right this morning as a condition of the 55 million Juno fund being paid they have to sign up to a new interpretation of the Treaty of Waitangi please tell me I got this wrong so I can delete the tweet no you haven't gotten it wrong and it's not just the treaty
1: It, yeah, it wasn't just the treaty, it was they had to characterise New Zealand as a systemically racist uh, country that disadvantages Māori. And as Jacinda Price said, you know, the voice referendum, uh, she described it as a transfer of power to empowered middle-class Aboriginals. That's exactly what a lot of this co-governance is. It's mm. a transfer of power to rent-seeking, <laughs> self-interested Māori cliques who uh, Feather their own nest. I was talking to a Maori leader, um, I was trying to get, get him uh, to come and talk to us, he's an old friend of mine, and it's, um, uh, had quite a few high-powered leadership roles and, and is very active within his various uh, iwi and, and uh, hapu. And he said he'd been doing quite a lot of uh, research, he's moved to a smaller place south of Gisborne, and he's been doing quite a lot of research, and he said he was really dismayed to find that often land alienation came because... Land had to be represented by ten people rather than all the people who lived on it, and those ten people often got together and they feathered their own nests, and that's where a lot of it, it comes from. And you know, there was also—did uh, you read the article by Paul Majuri, who's uh, Nati Maru, Nati Fananga, uh, Nati Pawa, and Nati Tamatera? Uh, he's an Iwi leader, senior lawyer, and chief negotiator for Pare And yeah, he he was cross about how much uh, treaty settlement slowed under Labor. You know, a lot of it is is fighting between tribes now. Mm. It's you know, and he said the the ones who are settled who have settled are pulling away.
0: Well, taking the money and run. Yep. Yeah, when it
1: was his turn in the seat, Chris Finlayson operated in Graham Cullen mode. In his six years, 38 settlements were shepherded through Parliament to become settlement acts. And in 2014 alone, there were 14 settlements that passed through to final completion. Conversely, in his six years as treaty negotiation minister, Angry Andrew Little and the Labour-led government... He didn't say Angry Andrew Little. I I just added that. ...brought just 12 settlements to conclusion... Many started by Finlayson. And that's you know that's the great mystery, isn't it, how many uh, nationals settled relative to labor, and how Maori just can't get out of that abusive relationship. and And he says the injustices suffered by Pare hauraki will not be made whole by our treaty settlement, far from it, being mere cents on the dollar for the grievous losses suffered by our people. The final settlement milestone will provide a basic platform for our tribes. To work towards our renaissance, it will represent the beginning of an opportunity to advance the cultural, social and economic fabric of our people and local communities. You know, it's worth saying again, what we're looking at spending on climate change this decade is something like 30 times the total treaty settlements so far. And if I were a Maori iwi getting paid cents on the dollar for agreed injustice. I'd be a bit crosser about that and maybe a little bit more resistant to the climate hysteria. I might find out a little bit more, well, is this absolutely as true as they say, or is this some scheme that is going to enrich already, as we discussed earlier, super rich banking class of people?
0: Mm. And that's one of the things that was really disappointing about Chris Finlayson, because he was very determined to get all of those settlements completed. So then that way there was a full stop around that. You know, like it was justice was seen to be done amongst all of those that were affected against breaches in Article 2 and he wanted to put a big full stop to that. And he was disrupted in doing it, obviously, with the... Oh,
1: so when you say that was what was disappointing about him, that was what was disappointing about his tenure.
0: Yes, about his tenure, because he never got to complete what he started. Yeah. And he he pumped, pumped it through. Like, he really... He, he did do that. And so for those that got those settlements, that they were able to sort of move forward. But what worries me now is that you have a strengthened caucus amongst a party Maori. And I look at some of the players, not necessarily in the caucus, but certainly in the machinery. What I see there are those middle managers are the ones that are looking at a a nest that's going to get even more plump and feathered than what it has already been during the likes of of the the pandemic and other. Well,
1: I guess what I would like to see is a discussion about, especially from leaders such as the leaders of Te Pāti Māori, you know, what does your vision look like? What is your happy place for Aotearoa? Is it for everyone who doesn't have... Any Maori ancestry to live as a reka, some sort of slave, you know, who's who, who's subordinate to those with the sacred blood? Is it that we go back where you came from, as so many Facebook comments um, say to anyone who who argues against you? If there'll never be a full and final treaty settlement, well, what's the point of doing it? Like. Mm. Is it is it just we're we're paying money to appease you and and stop you moaning for now, stop you blaming all your problems on us? Who, again, it's a blood libel essentially. Yeah. Quote Willie Jackson again. You know well, you can't blame me for my ancestors when they went and slaughtered the uh, Chatham Islanders. No. Oh. Mm. And, and and so, yeah, we've we've got to face down that haka. And the sacred anger that's uh, being used as a weapon to stifle debate and and uh,
0: and also yeah. distract. It's been yeah. used to distract. It's been used. I mean, the threats of, you know, protests and heckles that will outstrip what was happened during the apartheid-era Springbok tour, if there is a referendum, is not helpful, Willie. Really.
1: Yeah, I think we've got to stop seeing these people as clowns and and start really. Uh, getting our heads around how dangerous they are. And, and I mean, they're trying to draw parallels between what's happening in Gaza and New Zealand. It should should be a, a, a warning to us mm. about that. Naomi Wolf on Paul Brennan's uh, Breakfast Show. It's another interview that's worth checking out. Uh, and I was pleasantly surprised to find that she essentially echoed my own sentiments about that conflict when she said, stop paying attention to it. Stop making a big deal about it. Look at what's going on in your own country, and maybe stop going down the same path. Which is exactly how I feel. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I
0: mean, I had my little rant about that last week, didn't I? It's um, there's plenty here to focus on. If we, if you've yeah. got somewhere you need to channel that frustration and anger, channel it here.
1: Yeah, and let's head some uh, head some bad things off at the pass and. Yeah, you know, we we're talking as well about our hope for these negotiations. You know, while media are interviewing their keyboard, you and I both talking about how uh, we just hope they're just uniting on what our common problems are, and not getting too hung up on my new chair, Apart from, let's have that uh, inquiry into COVID. I mean, if the, if that was the bottom line for Winston Peters, uh, I think they'd be doing all right. And and I think each of each party could Basically, take a, res- a responsibility and run with it, and that'd give them something to go back to their electorate in three years to point to see whose works. And you know, for ACT, uh, that's probably education, you know, for for New Zealand first, uh, settling maybe some of the racial uh, conflict and uh, some of the regional economic productivity issues, energy and uh, national um, law mm. and order, maybe, and um obviously the bigger party so they're going to be doing uh, have a lot more heft but I was surprised to hear Rodney Hyde say the other day that he thought that Act should sit on the cross benches.
0: Yeah, yeah he's, he's been quite uh, open about that uh, all the way along. I don't think David Seymour will do it. I think he's I mean, there's lots of speculation about what's going on behind those closed doors. I think they're just having to iron out just the finer details because that's the thing the media haven't really focused on is the large areas of commonality that all three of them have. And often they it's a perception thing. They They will all agree on an issue. They just perceive it slightly differently or have a slightly different view or take on how to tackle it or solve it. So, you know, that's ironing that kind of stuff out. And it will be interesting to see what sort of comes out in the final wash, who washes out here and where, and then how Luxon will hit the ground running with us in this sort of first 100 days period. And i like the idea that they want to do another proper, full accounting of those books.
1: It's going to be unsettling for people to have a picture painted of the state the nation's in and how how... Much has deteriorated over the past six years. Now, because everything Labour were able to point to has come at the cost of $100 billion of extra debt. You know, as I've said before, if you've got $100 billion of debt, you want to have a lot more to point to than what they have, and you want to have a lot less downside. We've got considerable downside. And Mm. I think um, it's really important that the Mike Kings, the Marie Buskies, The Jacinta Price types, you know, we've got to get together and take the threat of the uh, the radicals who would divide us and set us against each other, and we've got to reject that out of hand. Yeah. We've got yeah. to reject the continued uh, characterization of labour as kind, just not very good at maths. Uh, so much of what they did was absolutely pernicious.
0: Mm. And we need to concentrate on those things, those commonalities, and actually just, you know, just get out and start doing it.
1: Um, I mean, you know, there's, there's, I'm seeing all sorts of little areas where the media is starting to just backtrack a little bit and, and appear to be on... A yes, they're, they're
0: taking those first few skating steps backwards before they potentially do a pirouette and
1: pivot yeah, the opposite they're like direction. Yeah. Disappearing into the hedge. And you know, there was an editorial on the Herald on Sunday, public health systems need fix. Um, we hear a lot from health providers about patient-centered care. What this means, in essence, is that people who use health services should be treated in a way that respects their individual circumstances and helps them make genuinely well-informed choices about their own well-being. Consider the national health strategy adopted by Labor in July. It envisages a national health system with its users at the forefront, accessible, flexible, inclusive. Every patient would be treated as an expert in their own condition. Services would measure their performance on patients' experiences. Far too often, however, patients' experiences in our health systems fall short of these laudable ambitions.
0: It's a pity, though, that they didn't follow that advice during the pandemic, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Well, that's what I'm kind of hinting at here. Uh, And, uh, you know, having watched Andrew Bridgen's speech in the UK to a parliament with 12 12 MPs sitting in it, I think the the challenge is that we don't fishtail. Mm. You know, we've got to make sure we don't overcorrect. As Mm. much as I would like to see Nuremberg too. Yeah, we have to make sure there's not an over overcorrection. An
0: overcorrection, yeah. I and the, I have to admit, I'm, and I'm going to, usually I don't mention COVID, but I am going to because I laugh, actually laughed out loud at the uh, article in terms of this fifth wave. Michael Baker is very worried about a fifth wave of COVID. That guy. And a uh, little piece of data I got sent was... So so what I'm referring to, and you and you have probably all seen the article, there's been a few, a little cluster of them last week, and it was in, in regards to this fifth wave of COVID, and uh, Michael is suggesting, strongly suggesting, that if you're not up to date with your boosters, that you pop out and get one of those, and that uh, you may want to consider wearing um, masks in crowded environments and be very mindful of Christmas festivities because of this fifth wave of COVID. And I got a piece of data. Now, the data comes out of hospitalisation data via Te Aura, so it is government data. And it's new hospitalisations this week, October 31st to November 13, 2023, of those hospitalisations for COVID. So this is in our fifth wave, people, in our fifth wave. There is uh, 79 hospitalisations. 70 of those 79 have had three or more jabs. Five have had two doses, four has had one dose, and there are no, no hospitalizations due to COVID from anyone who is unvaccinated. Ooh,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I know a lot of people who are who are getting sick, and, and, you know, there are protocols that have been suggested to kind of clear out some of those spike proteins that your body's been set to manufacture, and that, and that was, I guess, for me, a really evil part of this, is that they knew... That myocarditis was a risk, and rather than tell GPs, "Hey, look, you know, we, we've got to get on top of COVID. It's it, it's it's a terrible threat, but um, there is a slight risk of um, the heart damage with it. We can't really tell people that, but um, if you do see any signs of it, really take take it seriously and give them prompt treatment." Mm. Said doctors were saying, "Maybe it's anxiety. Mm. Maybe maybe you're just depressed." Maybe it's your imagination. Maybe you're going a bit mad. There was that Professor Scott Galloway of NYU Stern School of Business talking on the Bill Mayer show, and he said he had advocated lockdowns. He said, but you know, the damage to kids from keeping them out of school longer was greater than the risk. We were operating with imperfect information, but we were doing our best. Let's hold ourselves accountable, but have a little humility and forgiveness. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you get that.
0: No, well particu- particularly if you saw some of his earlier stuff which he said during that period and the
1: WEF guy. Yeah, and the Atlantic be- had a had a, a story. COVID amnesty, Fauci Gates, and Biden should be given a pass. You know who owns the Atlantic? Bill Gates.
0: Hmm. Anyway. What else have you got on your uh, on the board, Miss Ford, for you?
1: Well, there was an interesting couple of stories, and you know, I normally just hope and pray that you're not gonna <laughs> To bring up our uh, friend Shanil Lal, but he was talking about some uh, ambushes that had happened on uh, gay guys arranging to meet someone and then getting beaten up, and that's bad. You know, it's terrible. If, as I said, Shanil, if you're getting beaten beaten up, I'll give you a hand. You annoy me, but no one should do that. Violence is vulgar. It's not right uh, to to do that to someone on the basis of their sexuality. Absolutely unacceptable not permissible in any circumstances. And then further in the um, in the paper, a Norwegian citizen originally from Iran uh, was charged yesterday with aggravated terrorism for the 2022 deadly shooting ahead of an LGBTQ festival in the nightlife district of the capital, Oslo. Two people were killed and nine seriously wounded in the shooting at three locations. Now, a lot of those genderqueer leftists at the pro Palestine protest, it would do well to remember that. Be careful what you're wishing for.
0: Mm. Mm. And because, there's also not an absolute peep about the quarter of a million Afghans that Pakistan have said, mm, nope.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's not many, there's a few things. I mean, the brickstit thing is still not getting enough peeps. And you know, something I often think after a show, I feel bad about not talking to, is Julian Assange. That that guy's in a British prison, he's in solitary confinement 23 hours a day for embarrassing the US government. I think we probably should um, be a bit more outraged about that also.
0: Mm. Well, on the good news front for me, because I do like to end on the good news front, we had Robbie Williams here over the weekend. I did not attend, but 50,000 people, 50,000 people over two nights uh, had perfect weather at the Mission concert. And... I have to admit, I haven't seen Napier heaving with that many people for a really long time. And post Cyclone Gabrielle, it was certainly something that warmed the cockles of my heart. And so, to everyone who made the trip to see Robbie over the weekend, thank you so much. And hopefully, you got to see a slice of the Bay that we're back and everything is, you know, yeah, moving forward. Yeah, it's it's all looking good here in the Bay. And yesterday, the first cruise ship was on, so it's sort of I kind of beginning to get the summer vibe. Yeah,
1: well, certainly there have been a few days which have been hot, which is, you know, it's summer. That's
0: exactly. what happens. Well, thank you. There has, hopefully next week we'll be able to talk about completed no, um, coalition negotiation. That would be good. But until then, uh, thank you so much, Marty, as joining me, as you always do. And as we did say before, there are a couple of interviews we, th- we think you should really check out this week that have been fantastic. Uh, as Marty said, Naomi Wolf with Paul Brennan and also, to on The Crunch, uh, John Banks with ham slater both of those just go to the app download it google play store or your app store whatever device you've got head to the page whether it be breakfast or the crunch and of course counterculture there's plenty of great information there and you can download those and listen to those at your leisure at any time so there you go thanks marty we'll do it all again next week
1: my pleasure thanks marie And um, yeah, have a great week you're listening to counterculture on rcr Yellowy yep. Chick yep. Radio. Yep.
0: radio. radio.